Were there actually updates in physics, maybe mid-century, that were not disclosed to the public? Well, I mean, it quieted down because nobody ever got anywhere, or it quieted it down because they did get somewhere and it went black. Ladies and gentlemen, it's finally here, the much-anticipated conversation with Eric Weinstein and Hal Putoff. The world's most brilliant physics mind of our time is the son of the country's most prominent and important anti-gravity researcher of the 1950s. I don't know what any of this is. Hal is an electrical engineer and laser physicist. Former NSA and CIA, Hal was a senior advisor to ATIP, the official government UFO investigation program that ran from 2007 to 2012 out of Bigelow Aerospace. He also founded and ran the CIA's psychic spy program called Stargate out of Stanford Research Institute in the 70s. Does our government have a protocol to wield stigma as a tool for keeping its programs secret. Certainly there are parts of the government who consider that to be their job. Many of you are already familiar with my colleague Eric Weinstein. He's a mathematician who's dared to construct a unified theory of physics called geometric unity. He's also a prominent yet rebellious cultural commentator who founded the intellectual dark web. I still carry the sense of I cannot believe I am sitting here discussing visitations from some intelligent life that we don't understand. This interview is neither for the queasy nor the faint of mind. There are more videos, some are better. How much better? As good as you could probably want. For many of your comments, I haven't cut much from this interview. I left it pretty raw, long form, and unedited. It's a deep technical dive into the physics of UFOs, along with the implications of their prominence in the modern zeitgeist. That is that we are either being subjected to the most interesting, effective, and weird government psyop of all time, or our top scientists are missing something fundamental about the nature of reality. And finally, Hal gets about as candid as he's ever been about the government psychic spy program Stargate, while Eric, who's a little more skeptical of parapsychology, tries not to throw up. We ran 70-30 instead of 50-50. Sorry. But if you want to do it, feel free to do it. I've, I've told you how to do it, so you can just go do it. Okay. You don't have a lot of room to move. You either have to postulate new physics, or you have to say this isn't material. Everything here is bold. My conclusion is that there is something there. I don't like losing to Jesse. It's horrible losing him on UFOs. I don't want to lose it to him a second time. <laughs> but something is wildly off. So with that out of the way, hit subscribe and get ready to unlearn everything you thought you knew about the material world with Eric Weinstein and Hal Putoff. Different parts of the brain have different activities. <laughs> well, you know that, don't you? Maybe you should interview me. The Intelligence Committee has ordered the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of Defense to deliver a report on the mysterious sightings of unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP, more commonly known as UFOs. The reason I found the report fascinating was because it reeked of conflict. I could clearly detect a voice, an authorial voice that wanted to disclose more and one that said over my dead body. And the over my dead body people seemed to be stronger but losing ground. The, the first branch of the decision tree is, is it stuff that is unintentionally in the air? 
versus stuff that is intentionally in the air. The unintentional stuff was broken into two categories. And that was clutter and atmospheric effects. The stuff that is intentionally in the air was broken into the next branch, which was us, not us. Not us was broken into two things, known others and unknown others. And that other is intentionally in the air, not us, not anyone we know. Not necessarily aliens, could be coming out of the ocean, could be time travel. I mean, who the hell knows? But anything in that other category is astonishing. I think one very important thing that most people in government who study this seem to sort of have a consensus on that the public might not realize is the idea that there is a separation between substrate and signature uh, when it comes to UFOs. And there might be a difference in terms of the way somebody perceives it and some underlying sort of proto-architecture. Yeah. And so if we have been seeing these things for thousands of years, we've been seeing them in different forms. Different forms and maybe <clears throat> different sources. Mm -hmm. These days, since our technology platforms are so high to generate effects they could mimic, and uh, our detection platforms are so well advanced so we could see a lot more, then it really is a zoo of options and possibilities. And so, for example, for the Tic Tac videos that are so well known, Lou Elizondo was behind uh, releasing those videos. I remember seeing them in the Pentagon before they were released. <clears throat> but there are more videos. Some are better. How much um, better? Well, as good as you could probably want. If, I, if you showed me pieces of a craft and you guaranteed me somehow that it came from outside the solar system, my first thought wouldn't be technology. It would be physics because everything is so far away from us, other than our solar system, that I would be wondering, well, how did it get here? When you look at the Civil War in the United States, it took place in the 1860s. Within less than 100 years, we were dropping fusion devices from jet aircraft. Less than 100 years, less than a single lifetime, means that we almost had a nuclear civil war, and it was a very near miss. Now, what separated the 1860s, which looked like antiquity to mm. many of us, from 1952, when we have the first fusion weapon explode? It was changes in our understanding of the physical world. That means any time you have a profound physical insight post I don't know, 1940s. You have to ask yourself, what Pandora's box would a new physical insight potentially open? Mm. And I don't know why we're not more worried about this. I think because we've been failing at physics for 50 years, we've gotten out of the habit of thinking physics is really dangerous and you have to track every single important physicist because any change in our physical understanding of the universe can unlock holy hell. Were there actually updates in physics, maybe mid-century, that were not disclosed to the public? Another puzzle we would love to have cleared up is an understanding of the role of aerospace companies as holders 
of potentially basic scientific knowledge not shared with the academic world. Is it possible? It seems very wrong to me. Maybe wrong, but it's um, true. It is true. You believe it's true. Yeah, I know it's true. You know that there's physics knowledge held by aerospace companies that is not there known? There certainly is materials knowledge. Materials, well, okay, material Which science. Which involves topological physics or whatever. I mean. Okay. But fundamental physics as opposed to, you know, condensed matter or... Right. Certainly aerospace corporations have knowledge in the UAP area that specifically are sequestered by, against FOIA. Oh, because of proprietary I labels, that. which the whole thing was set up to be that way, on purpose. Right, but the idea that there would be fundamental physics knowledge that would be housed in an aerospace company and not shared with the physics community, there is no evidence of that. No evidence for it, not, not that I know of. And I wouldn't. That, have, that doesn't mean it's not the case, but that would be this crazy, egregious. It, it would change thing. our entire concept of who we are if somebody kept fundamental physics secret in the years since we became capable of exploding fusion devices. Right. I would grab a pitchfork <laughs> yeah. and a tiki torch and I would march on the National Science Foundation. Right, right. I, mean, I don't, I, I still can't believe that that's true. It would only be if it were the case that in fact we have mastered anti-gravity and they're being built by aerospace corporations, then new physics would have to be involved. Is what is called the golden age of general relativity tied to these topics? That is, there was this bizarre surge of activity in general relativity between, you know, I would say the time of Einstein in the 50s or something like that. There wasn't a ton of development in GR, and then suddenly there was this explosion. There was a... Well, there's the explosion. Uh, there, there's a famous... Uh, series came out in the Miami Herald and other newspapers in um, probably the 50s. The author was Talbert and he did a series where he found out that a number of aerospace engineering companies were suddenly interested in anti-gravity and that people like DeWitt on up and down, really top level physicists were suddenly getting grants to look at the idea of anti-gravity. For example, the uh, Gravity Essay came along. This from the Gravity Research Gravity Foundation Research in Foundation. Boston. Right. And so it looked like it's going to be a big explosion. But anyway, then it all sort of quieted down. And I could take two implications of that, and that is it quieted down because nobody ever got anywhere. Or it quieted it down because they did get somewhere and it went black. My understanding is that there were really twin loci of activity, one of which surrounds a uh, Gravity Research Foundation in New Boston, New Hampshire, and I guess that was the work of Babson, and the right. story is uh, sort of not really very plausible, that his sister had drowned in a pond or something to that effect, hmm. and so he had, had Gravity as his sworn enemy. Um, <laughs> You know this story? No, I had not heard it. Oh, yeah. So Babson contacted Lewis Witten, who was coming out of Johns Hopkins, and then oddly, a the similarly named individual named Bainson, with some sort of tobacco or air conditioning fortune, reaches out to Bryce DeWitt 
and asks whether he will found an institute at the University of North Carolina yes, Chapel right, Hill right. for the study of physical fields. And particularly focusing on gravity. Particularly focused on gravity. Now somehow DeWitt has the courage to answer this essay contest in the other silo and destigmatizes it. So there was money to be had, but nobody wanted to touch it because of fear of ridicule from their colleagues. And, and then there's a famous gravity conference at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill that sort of kicks a lot of this off. It's a tremendous flurry of activity at a time when anti-gravity was trying to break into respectability. At a minimum, we know that the Glenn Martin Company, where Martin was an early pioneer, I think from the time of the Wright brothers, um, that the Glenn Martin Company becomes Martin Marietta, later becomes Lockheed Martin. So that word Martin is coming all the way through was employing, uh, I believe, Lewis Witten, uh, Edward Witten's father, to do anti-gravity research, somehow tied up with Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio uh, and the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. So there's something about aerospace in the 1950s and sort of post-Manhattan Project era that's pretty potent and we're confused by this. Why was Solomon Lefschetz, the great topologist, recruited to be involved with uh, Lewis Witten and to have an entire nonlinear group uh, working on mathematics that then gets moved to Brown University when I believe that, th that these programs are sunsetted, so they get spun off back into the academic ecosystem. I don't know what any of this is. So you have top physicists working on Crazy this, stuff, anti-gravity. Most physicists don't yeah. know the story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like, I knew it because it was weird. It stood out. The Lewis Witten, Edward Witten story has never been fully made sense. The world's most brilliant physics mind of our time mm -hmm. is the son of the country's most prominent and important anti-gravity researcher of the 1950s. Do you think that string theory, which Ed Witten worked on, is intentionally a bridge to nowhere? I have privately said to you that string theory was a very odd development because it both allowed physics to proceed as if it was doing something new while breaking no new ground in the physical world in which we live. I don't really know if you were trying to stagnate the field String theory is pretty brilliant. If there was knowledge that allowed you to, to traverse the cosmos, in other words, if you could render Einstein's theory effective, uh, just the way Einstein rendered Newton's theory non-fundamental, but an effective theory derived from Einstein's theory in a limit, to not share that knowledge with the physics community would be seen as gross academic and intellectual malpractice. Yeah, if somebody had that level of knowledge, I mean, <clears throat> the best that uh, you know, we could do in the, in the ATIP program was say, okay, let's accept Einstein's GR as being the theory, okay. even though there are all kinds of arguments for why it's something By GR, you mean general relativity. General relativity. And uh, for this subject area, for the UAP subject area, as far as, as we've gone, is to say, okay, suppose I treat general relativity, Einstein's equations for general relativity, the way I would treat Maxwell's equations for electromagnetism, 
if we could manipulate variables in Einstein's equations the way we manipulate uh, variables in Maxwell's equations, you would see certain kinds of things which tend to match claimed observations of UAP phenomena. Somewhere there's a missing key for how you can do manipulation of those variables in Einstein's equations without having to have uh, a black hole in your pocket. Are you talking about the idea that you want to promote constants to field content, to be actual physical fields that can vibrate and live and move? Yes, I would say so. But then you have the quantum mechanical consequences. When you promote something to field content, you break it, you bought it. You've got a lot of... Uh, you got fluctuations and, and uncertainty principles. And it so. contributes to all sorts of uh, right. processes, and sometimes you get uh, you know, explosions of terms of series, and things stop converging, and things can get quite bad. Is that something that you feel you've handled? Well, at, at a certain level. How can we describe in layman's terms the idea of promoting a constant, like a gravitational constant, into a, a field variable? So a very kind of helpful, actually, analogy used for me, who's a, I'm a total idiot when it comes to this stuff, is a circle and pi being a constant, you know, the area of a circle is pi r squared. Uh, and so if the circle had bumps in it, or if it was topologically different in some way, pi wouldn't be pi. Pi would sort of uh, be more variable. In such circumstances, something that you thought was a constant turns out to be variable when considered in a larger space of possibilities. Likewise, if I ask, what is the temperature in this room? I'm feeling a little bit chilly. And you might say, oh, I think the temperature is 64. Uh, but then we might find out that, in fact, the room varies between 63 degrees and the 69 degrees in a different corner of the room. So something that you thought was a number, like we just we had inflation estimates of 6.8 and then 7.0%. And I was very angry about that because my claim was that you should report inflation on various maps the way you show the temperatures in the country uh, on a temperature map with gradients and isotherms and what have you. If you do that to numbers like, for example, the gravitational constant, that constant could be the value of a function. And if it was the value of a function and then that function became quantum mechanical, you would have to treat it quantum mechanically. It's not cheap to replace a number by a function or a field. We have an entire planet pulling us uh, towards these couches. And yet, when the interview yeah. is done, we will get up from these couches, defeating right. an entire planet. The weakness of gravity is right. one of the great mysteries uh, of our lives. It, it, it's inconceivably weak. True enough, yeah. And if we accept Einstein's general relativity, as, as, uh, again, I'm not quite sure how much of it you, you take issue with, it would seem that we are either prisoners here or that we have to lean so heavily on time dilation or we would have to uh, amass levels of energy. I mean, y your point is... Yeah, we, we, can't, we can't do it from what we know for sure. Okay. So then the no idea way. is we'd have to have something wrong in GR. Yeah, something is at least missing. Okay. And maybe GR is okay 
as it goes, but we're missing something that would have the effect of manipulating the variables in there that we can't do with any reasonable engineering approach. Well, so far as I know, there's only one analog that even smells vaguely like this in electromagnetism. Aronoff and Bohm argued that if you passed an electron beam around a solenoid yep. and passed a current through it, if it was perfectly insulated, you would have no E and B fields out, that is electric, electric right. and magnetic fields, outside of the solenoid, but yet you'd get a phase shift in the yep. electron beam as it circled. This is what's known as a holonomy effect. You guys talk about this incredible experiment called the Bohm-Aronoff effect. Can you show me the actual experiment? Imagine you have some sort of an electron gun, and you have a beam of electrons, and they hit a first mirror, so that they bounce off of that mirror. You have a next mirror in the form of a diamond, and I'm looking down on my tabletop experiment, and I've got some sort of a detector over here. If I have a wire here that's heavily, heavily insulated, I can imagine running a current through this wire, the solenoid in the center, and the E and B fields would be dead equal to zero because of the insulator. However, when I pass current through this wire, mysteriously the detector picks up different patterns of self-interference of the phase of the electron function. In other words, this setup can detect whether there's current passing through the wire despite near-perfect insulation. That was what was so frightening in the late 50s, is that we were discovering that it wasn't the electromagnetic fields at all that were really the important actor in the electromagnetic story. We thought we understood electromagnetism from mm. the time of Maxwell, mm. but clearly the electromagnetic four potential was really the main actor. Do we understand the nature of the electromagnetic four potential? Or is it just this sort we of do. weird Geometrically, empirical? I think we have a very good handle. Okay. And so you mentioned the Higgs field looking like something like a, you know, analogous to like a wine bottle. What would the electromagnetic four potential geometrically look like? Well, it looks like a version of the Escher staircase or the Penrose stairs. Um, in effect, those stairs would be something like, we would call them horizontal subspaces. The weird feature of going around a circuit and always going up the stairs and yet never climbing in height. Uh, that would be what we would call a holonomy effect due to curvature. Paradox. And you can go way beyond that, so there are all kinds of uh, toroidal geometries, for example, where you have no EM fields whatsoever, but you have strong vectored scalar fields. And since you have no Lorentz force in the absence of E and B, then how can you detect them? Well, you detect them by, the by um, any kind of quantum detector that can detect phase shifts can detect the vector and scalar potential even in the absence of fields. So there's a whole engineering approach uh, concerning which I have two patents, by the way, and have started a new company um, <clears throat> that involves only dealing with uh, vector and scalar potentials. When you are, are trying to come up with this analogy between electromagnetism and general relativity to explain some of these effects, 
are you dealing only with the Levi-Civita connection of the metric as Einstein did, or are you <coughs> considering? I'm, I'm basically uh, dealing with the metric coefficients by postulating a dielectric vacuum whose dielectric constant values for, say, epsilon and mu, the permeability and permittivity of the vacuum, can be manipulated. And once you manipulate those, you're manipulating C, which is one over the screw to mu epsilon. And so once you begin to manipulate C, then you can change effects associated with all of the, and so you could, with this, with this uh, polarizable vacuum approach, which I published in uh, Physics Journal, um, you can get all of the, quote, tests of general relativity and so on. So, so the fact that you might be able to pursue that further by taking into account the fact that underlying electromagnetism is, is um, vacuum fluctuations, which have the effect of controlling the value for epsilon and mu. So then you say, okay, well, if I want to go over to general relativity, maybe I can control the underlying uh, values for the metric coefficients. So there are various mathematical approaches to kind of pushing Einstein's equations to be not quite Einsteinian. So we're not talking about, this is, this is what has been confusing to me. There's a question of accepting the Einsteinian prison or trying to do to Einstein what Einstein did to Newton and then say there's a more fundamental theory. And what you're really saying is, is that you're trying to come up with a more fundamental theory than general relativity in which many of the things that are hard-coded are in fact vacuum expectation values that are only discernible within the yeah, theory, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. There are consequences after impact. You have a theory that is a greater it's more expansive than Einstein. Einstein would be... You can locate Einstein within it. You can locate Einstein within it. And so does any of the stuff in geometric unity, your theory, dovetail with what you're seeing in terms of observables with UFOs and UAPs? There are two strong versions of geometric unity. In one case, you put an extra six dimensions as time dimensions into the, into the mix. And so one plus six is seven. And then you've got four extra spatial dimensions, and four plus the three spatial dimensions we already know is seven. So you'd have what we would call a split signature metric seven and seven, seven times seven space. And the other way of, of effectively gluing these extra dimensions is, in is to flip them. So you'd have four extra time dimensions. That would be five time dimensions in total versus nine spatial, with three that we know, plus six new ones. In either case, though, you're talking about multiple temporal dimensions. Mm. And even physicists rarely talk about multiple temporal dimensions because it completely breaks our paradigm of what we might call Hamiltonian dynamics. Mm. The idea that you, you can take any situation in space and then propagate it through time to get the future. Mm. When you have more than one time dimension, you have more than one future. You have no arrow of time. You have a whirlpool of time for the first additional time dimension. Then you have a right-hand rule of, uh, of time. 
And so this arrow of time becomes something you call a time orientation. And then the weird, horrible thing about that, if I may use the board. Yeah, go for it. When you have more than one temporal dimension, you now have a new possibility that you've never considered, which is you could go back into this extra time, extra time dimension and find yourself at an earlier event without ever having to retrace time steps. You wouldn't have to run time backwards. We don't really know how to think about these things very well. They lead to something which is called ultra-hyperbolic equations. And we don't have a ton of focus or skill around these sorts of problems. One of my biggest concerns is, is that if geometric unity turns out to be true, we don't know what it means to be able to hack extra temporal dimensions. Hmm. And that's a big concern. I mean, it would probably explain some of this uh, at least observably faster than speed of Not light travel. See, that's the thing. There is no faster than light travel. Mm -hmm. And we have to train people away from saying, do you think we have faster than light travel? Mm -hmm. There may be something that would appear to be faster than Which light. temporal dim dimension hacking. Which sort of makes it, because a lot of these UAPs seem to sort of materi materialize and dematerialize at will. Look, there's certainly scope for pattern matching if you have things like dark chemistry, dark light, um, if you have uh, multiple spatial and temporal dimensions beyond what we know. The concern, though, is we don't know whether they're accessible. The interest and the fear has to do with the idea that maybe somebody else knows the answer to this and they aren't human. So that one's called the Time Warp? I can't believe you never saw a Rocky Horror Picture Show. No, I, have, I know it's a cult classic. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it. Yeah. Speaking of cults, how weren't you in Scientology? Oh, year, years, years back, uh, I checked into it because at that time we were doing, you know, setting up a remote viewing program. We were checking into everything. Yeah. Silver mind control, Scientology, whatever, whatever. I, I thought some of the techniques were definitely of value, but uh, <clears throat> I disconnected from them in yeah. the mid-70s or whatever. I think what we need to do is we need to talk about pseudoscience and stigma and its weaponization and its use. So the first thing I want to ask you about is does our government have a protocol to wield stigma as a tool for keeping its programs secret? Is the, is the government oh, a sir, source? Certainly there are parts of the government who consider that to be their job. Is there a language for the manipulation of stigma to discourage people from under, undertaking scientific investigations that might lead them into an area of security concern? Uh, there is a language in there. There are certain operations that sort of have that effect, um, but there are people who are trying to get around. You, you personally have been the target of a great deal of directed stigma, it right. would seem to me. Do you have a sense that you've been, that your career has been directed by manufactured stigma? Well, certainly, uh, there was manufactured stigma and control. We've had people actually shut down a piece of a program on the basis that American taxpayer dollars should not be spent on pursuing demonic technology. You know Dan Sheehan? Yeah. Okay. I was friendly with Dan Sheehan and admired his work taking on all of these crazy cases yeah, against right. the government, not knowing he had any interest in 
UFO UAP. There was an attempt to discredit him through stigma because of his interest in the Iran-Contra uh, matter right. with the Christic Institute. And so I think he was fed wrong information probably so that he'd swing at a bad pitch. Um, and that's why I was very interested at the weaponization of stigma and whether or not you were party to any knowledge of how that is carried out so as to keep these programs. No, I've never, uh, other than um, being the effect of it. You do want to keep things like the Loch Ness Monster and spoon bending away from the UFO conversation, if you can. And there's this tremendous force in this world to say, well, if we're opening our minds to UFOs, uh, my aunt lived in this house that was haunted for 27 years. Like, I don't want to hear this. I don't <laughs> want to listen to the fact that your aunt's house yeah. was haunted. Now, the thing that goes against what I'm saying is something like cattle mutilation. Uh -huh. So either somebody is an amazing sadistic animal hoaxer, or you have to open the UAP story to them communicating something by their decision to study cattle or leave cattle as presents for us or who knows what. Well, that brings up this really weird place called Skinwalker Ranch in, in Utah. I think it's the, near the U Utah Basin. And Uinta. Uinta Basin. And so it, there's a myth that involves the Ute tribe fighting the Navajos. And I believe the Navajos sick these skinwalkers, these sort the, of shapeshifting. The Utes were collaborating with the United States government. And the Navajo <laughs> weren't so happy. And so they cursed this particular spot of land with skinwalkers. And uh, the family that used to live on the land would see tons of cattle mutilations. They'd, they'd experience all sorts of paranormal things. Bigelow buys it. Bigelow's obviously very interested in the you know uh, UAP phenomena. And now it seems like it's this place where they do all sorts of experiments. They have anomalous electromagnetic effects on the grounds. So w what, do you, what do you make of this? Something is wildly off. This stuff is interesting enough that it should be attracting scientists. And the scientists who are attracted to this should be debunking the living crap out of this if it's some dime store BS. But the absence of scientists is itself puzzling. Yeah. Partially due to stigma, partially due to the fact that nobody wants to get sucked into some low-rent uh, horror movie <laughs> where two kids see a creature in the Black Lagoon and they try to tell the townspeople and no one believes them. Yeah. The question uh, is, is the stigma manufactured or is the stigma stigma because all this stuff is bullshit? We're pretty clear that a lot of stigma is manufactured. Mm -hmm. So the government talks about in internal documents image cheapening. And what's the context in which image cheapening is, has been used or discussed? Famously in that against a woman who was a leading actress in Hollywood named Jean Seberg. And the FBI, this is how we learned about image cheapening, um, planted a story with a woman named Joyce Haber in the Los Angeles Times that the baby that she was carrying was, in fact, not her French husband's, but was, in fact, uh, the baby of a black panther. They drove her to suicide. They drove her to miscarriage first and then 10 years of suicide attempts. But the key point is our government does not necessarily blink mm -hmm. trying to turn your reputation into absolute garbage if you get close to its treasured sources and methods. Yeah. And that is not compatible with saying that 
we have something that we don't understand menacing our military, its airspace, and our nuclear sites. Very strange. It's hard because it's clear that there's some element of PSYOP here and that it's, it's hard to sort of separate. There has to be PSYOP. There has to be. Because Project Blue Book yes. and the Pentagon report do not seem to be particularly compatible. In other words, it appears that either we were lying then, uh-huh. that there's nothing to see, yeah. and we're telling the truth now, or we're telling the truth then that there's nothing to see, and we're lying now that UFOs are here. What I find really interesting about the Blue Book history is Edward J. Ruppelt was sort of running Blue Book. He was an Air Force general, and he seemed pretty open-minded to the phenomena being real, especially after kind of empirical inquiry. And then in 1952, something very bizarre happened, which is there were a bunch of spottings, of UFO spottings, um, around Washington, D.C. in July 1952. And then there's a, there's a Caltech physicist named H.P. Robertson who forms kind of a panel. And the conclusion of the panel is basically um, the government needs to systematically downplay the importance of the phenomena. And uh, if the public were to know the truth, it would touch off mass hysteria. Every single uh, head of Blue Book from that point forward, from 52 to 69 when it ended, uh, became progressively more kind of anti-UFO. And so the question is, is this, you know, typical CIA leaked doc to lead us off the trail and is it bullshit? Or um, did was manufactured stigma created between 1952 and 1969? Actually, Blue Book maybe initially was kind of open to... What happened in 1952? The DC UFO sightings in, in July. Yeah, well, I was going to say the... Well, what else? The first H-bomb. The H-bomb. Teller, yeah. The teller Ulam design. Yeah. So the concern that I have is that in 1952, we sent off a signal. Just, way, just the way when North Korea detonates a nuclear device, it sends seismic waves through the earth. It can't stop sending information outside of the country. I think in 1952, we sent a signal to the cosmos, which is that we're very, very close to being in possession of root-level knowledge, to take a software metaphor. We are about to become root, which is terrifying if you're a system administrator, that you've got a hacker that's about to get full control of the system. It's like your edge.org question, which was, uh, what happens when we discover our own source code? Does something unprecedented happen? Does something unprecedented happen? When man finds... Well, people didn't understand what the question was. It was the final edge question. and Instead of giving an answer, he asked us to give a question. Mm-hmm. Um, the concern that I have is that in 1952, what if there was someone there to hear what we said in the Pacific? Mm. If there was something or someone there to hear us, they probably heard us as saying, we're on the verge of being able to come visit you. That's terrifying. The, the Stargate program, which you ran, which is a government sort of psychic spy program, uh, ran from 1972 to 1995, and it ended in 1995 under Ed May. And, you know, a lot of people after that said that it wasn't all that effective. See, that's part of the uh, negative the stigmatization. Stigma. Well, I was just reading Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, you know, where it talks about ATIP and, and I guess... OSAP, yeah. OSAP, these two programs... Uh, and it looks like remote viewing is sort of, again, revived. I, I, guess don't, the, I don't think it ever really died. 
So, so, so the question mm -hmm. is, yeah, or, or is that is that um, creating a stigma because you're bundling in parapsychology, um, which might be pseudoscience with the UFO stuff, or or is it is there some connection between those two things? Because there seems like a lot of overlap in terms of the people interested in the parapsychology stuff and the people interested in the UFO stuff. As Jacques Vallée and Eric Davis put out a very nice paper of six levels of UAP phenomena, which range all the way from nuts and bolts at the bottom to spiritual or metaphysical aspects at the top and everything kind of in between. Uh, can you can you break that down for us? So what are the six levels and how, how uh, is, are the nuts and bolts at all tethered to spiritual phenomena? Well, see, they're the nuts and bolts things. But then some of the consequences of the nuts and bolts things are changes in what we call ordinary reality, which people who are the effect of might claim that that's some kind of paranormal thing because that's the only word they can come up with to describe it. So there are paranormal things and then it's sort of a gradation from there uh, into things that are purely non-physical but supposedly, quote, possibly psychokinesis. I have to admit I have such a strong visceral negative reaction. It's very interesting <laughs> because, as Jesse will tell you, Jesse was interested in this UFO, UAP stuff, and I couldn't be in the room with it. I just, I hated the topic. It always felt like garbage to me. Mm -hmm. And I found out that I was apparently wrong about that. The federal government is certainly tracking in this. It doesn't make any sense to me still that we have all these sensors and we don't have great video all over the place. I don't know how these UAPs, you know, could possibly evade all of the cameras that we have outside of the government, uh, and that we, we have no conclusive proof. But assume, okay, I was wrong about that at some level because we are now discussing this in the open. So I'm willing to start to revise everything that is protected by my desire to throw up. Right, there's, there's just that just shows the the stigma program has been no, very no, effective. <laughs> but it was on me, right? I'm, I'm being honest and open. <laughs> yeah. I still carry the sense of I cannot believe I am sitting here discussing visitations from some intelligent life that we don't understand potentially. Uh, but okay, so you know, a scientist should be able to consider these things, and I'm not going to be the prisoner of the stigma. But you I am got, going to ask. You got A.V. Loeb at Harvard setting up his yeah. thing to pursue it. But the, but the, but no, Ooh. that this is a really important question. If if you could set up a ton of sensors, how would we know what we're seeing at high sample size? If right now we don't know what we're seeing at low sample size, and I think one question I'd have for you, where I'd challenge you, is again. <laughs> is is there some physics that we will figure out in the future well, around about. certain ability, uh, around certain people's ability to see these things? And that sounds really pseudoscience and crazy, but most of the people involved in the program seem to think that there's something ar around that. And as far as, far as uh, you know, why aren't we getting really clear pictures? I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily the case that we're not getting clear You pictures. may be getting but, really clear pictures. But the but average guy with an iPhone, let, let's say the craft is there, but it's manipulating the space-time metric. So you're just going to get fuzzy outlines because light is being bent in various ways around the craft oh. and so on. So you're going to get a lousy picture. It doesn't mean because it isn't really there. I would imagine I would be drowning 
in high quality video and it's 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 a great puzzle to me that I'm sitting here discussing this I can't even solve this puzzle and then the related puzzle having to do with remote viewing or anything like that is if I take a materialist perspective that the world is created of material whose laws can be understood and you put me in and and you or say in two lead-lined rooms and we try to make sure that there's no way that any of the known forces or matter fields can communicate you know I my mind goes to you know are we claiming that neutrinos are carrying the information are we claiming that there's a new force are we claiming that um, the world isn't material or the, the entanglement uh, is more see this is spread out than involved well entanglement involved. would be one of those things like Bohm Aronoff yeah. and Casimir which has the appearance of being spooky right in mm -hmm. other words if, if you had a a culture in which magicians possessed scientific knowledge, they would have an edge over everyone else because they could explain, they could predict the Bohm-Aronoff effect. See, I can, I can manipulate right, this electron right. beam without even having any possibility of touching it, right? So th this gets to the issue of advanced science being indistinguishable from magic. And then the idea that this is, in some sense, held by a particular silos over other silos. I mean, as a scientist, I either want to laugh or my blood boils. Well, I mean, <clears throat> that, that's a kind of a justifiable position. Uh, for example, early on in the CIA remote viewing program that uh, I set up at SRI, I was asked to check out claims of a psychic, Ingo Swan. Ingo had done experiments at City College in New York under Professor Gertrude Schmeider. She had set up thermistors, and from across the room, he could make the temperatures go up and down. And so I took this claimed psychic, invite him out to SRI to see, see what he could do. He had the quark detector. And so it was basically a quantum chip inside a mu metal magnetic shielding, inside of a steel doer for electrical shielding, inside of superconducting shielding. The requirement being that nothing could affect this thing from the outside. So I want to see if you can affect it. He affected it unequivocally 100%. You had this slow oscillation. What he did was he stopped the oscillation. Now what turned out to be even more, quote, magical was when we asked him, you know, how do you know what to do? And he said, well, all I did was look inside, and then he drew out how things were related inside that never been published, and it turned out that they were accurate. And so it was when I wrote all that up and circulated around, that's when the CIA came knocking at my doorstep. And they said, oh, we've been looking for you. And I said, you know, why? What did I do? He said, well, the Russians have been spending millions of dollars at their best institutes with their best people for years. No scientist in America even believes there's such a thing as psychokinesis or ESP or whatever. And you happen to do this experiment. And so, you know, we graduated from there to having remote viewing of super secret facilities and project titles hidden in safes. That's how the whole program got started. It ended up being a 20-year, $20 million program. I don't know what to make of all of this. I don't think any of this, to me, sounds real. Now, that said, 
you could imagine a one-time backwards upgrade saying, we happen to know about aliens for a, for a long period. We've kept it secret. We figured out the physics. The physics has different fields. We're actually able to use this. We call it psychic phenomenon so we don't have to give our secrets away. You could imagine a complete reworking of reality. Without that real working of reality, I would say this is BS. Mm. What, would, what would be your best guess? Assuming you think, because you have levered a lot of your life into parapsychology and you've levered a lot of your life into physics, how would you reconcile physics with parapsychology, which I realize is a, you know, a $64 million question, but what would be your best guess? Do you have any theories? Well, we, we, we can definitely rule out that it's EM brainwaves because we put some of our remote viewers on submarines and took them to the bottom of the ocean, and we got some of our best results. Mm -hmm. In fact, the remote viewers in the submarine said, boy, it's really quiet here, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, if I think about it in terms of telescopy, right, for every long-range field, we now have a telescope. So we have optical and radio telescopes for photons. We have neutrino telescopes, which is actually matter rather than force. We know that neutrinos can zip through a planet and not right. even notice it was there. And then we have gravitational telescopes in the form of LIGO. And the weak force is going to be super short range, super weak because it's effectively massive. And we have vector scalar uh, forces and EM. Uh, Sorry, when, when I think about ENM, I'm thinking... You're including vector and scalar potentials? Hell yes. I mean, okay. no, nobody, right. nobody, okay. everybody's moved on to vector. I don't even want to call it vector and scale, just potentials. Yeah, they're different. Con know. Connections on, on fiber bundles. And then you have this issue of gravitation with LIGO. Right. Right? So we can, we can pick up super long-range stuff from colliding black holes by now measuring right. gravity waves. Gluons aren't going to do much for you. Quarks aren't going to do much for you. These are the fields that really give us information from distant galaxies. And then there's the question of, are you talking about a material world that we don't yet know? Or, or material effects that is part of the material where we do know. Where, where the, somehow we haven't For example, that entanglement. I mean, you have all these. But, but you know the usual issues about it not being useful to communicate information. You have, you have this bizarre non-locality of entanglement, but you can't use it for FTL for faster than light communication. communication right. Right, so if, if two, two events are space-like separated, uh, you're not, so far as we know, there's no means of tricking uh, an entangled yeah, no ensemble. no means of controlling it, right. Yeah, so th this But is it happens. Well, I'm, I'm struggling with this, to be, to be honest, <laughs> okay. to say, to, to put it mildly. And I don't like losing to Jesse. It's horrible losing to him on UFOs. I don't want to lose it to him a second time. <laughs> um, but I guess what the question is, really, you don't have a lot of room to move. You either have to postulate new physics. You have to say that there are new effects like Aronoff-Bohm that we didn't understand or the physics that we already know, but we haven't unpacked them yet. Mm -hmm. Or you have to say this isn't material, that there's, uh, there are angels and demons and spirits that, uh, that don't conform to our understanding. Everything here is bold. There's nothing that simply, yeah, we, we saw this effect, it was robust. So uh, for me, yes. I, I've looked into the Stargate stuff and, I, and I've talked to you a decent amount. Mm -hmm. My conclusion is that there is something there and yet 
it feels like there are a lot of near misses as well, and it seems very hard to instrumentalize and scale up. There was plenty of times when we produced really good data, mm -hmm. and to be fair, there were plenty of times when it failed. If you don't understand the causal mechanism, then you're going to have repeatability issues. And so is there like a part of the brain, like so like the, the Penrose thing, which is probably wrong, but you know, this idea that he, he wrote in The Emperor's New Mind, that the microtubules, um, I guess that was the follow-up of The Emperor's New Mind with Hameroff, the microtubules are a quantum sensor that collapses the wave function into an eigenstate. Yeah, you I have, have, some, some, I have some sympathy for going along that direction. So you think yeah. there's some sort of quantum sensor in the, in the brain, and do you have a top candidate for the specific structure? Well, I can't rule it out. I mean, they certainly started from a very fundamental thing, is, and that is, if you can get rid of consciousness by using an anesthetic, then however you're doing it must have something to do with consciousness. If, if this effect exists, why is it classified and why is the government, where is it in the stock market? Well, there are remote viewers who use it on the stock market. So like the classic, the good example is that you guys tried to start a hedge fund, you know, just trading silver futures, and you made something like 260K, and I think scaling it beyond that seemed to be a big, a big challenge. It was only a challenge because I didn't have the time to, to do it. I mean, our particular thing. I got it. I mean, I want, I want to be polite, but I also want to be aggressive. Sure. My experience with money tells me that you can win over any skeptic very quickly if you can just shove millions of dollars into their pocket by arbitraging their skepticism. Okay, well, let, me, let me tell you how to do it, and you just go do it. It's really easy, actually. <laughs> I, I, um, know, I know some people with capital. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just have somebody pick a couple of objects, have them label them, mark it up, mark it down, um, and they're going to show you the object the following day, depending on what the market does, and then you do your best to generate a description, and based on that description, they can go bet, and the next day, uh, on the average, you'll get, get your money. We ran 70-30 instead of 50-50, and so it's two steps forward, one step backward, two steps forward, one step backward. That back. is astounding claim. That's how we got the... $260,000, uh, Why did you stop? Well, the reason I stopped was I was already working uh, practically 24 hours a day on, on, on training the Army intelligence officers. And so I was exhausted after 30 days of doing this. Sorry. But if you want to do it, feel free to do it. I've, I've told you how to do it, so you can just go do it. Okay. Well, I'm having a very surreal experience. For a large portion of the conversation, you seem absolutely cogent, coherent, well-informed, well-spoken. And then there's this part that just doesn't make any effing sense. And this is the part that doesn't make any effing sense. Rolling up in a Bugatti to your Gulf Stream to fly to your island is a very powerful argument that you know what you're talking about. The Bitcoin community has been insulted by the economists. They've been laughed at by financiers. And they have a phrase which I really detest, but I think you need to hear it. And it's called number go up. And number go up means that when you're talking to a, an esteemed professor of economics mm -hmm. or finance, and they're telling you that you're an idiot, and you say, well, why don't you visit me at the Yellowstone Club? I'll, I'll, I'll send the jet around for you. Number go up is an incredibly powerful argument because of human greed and avarice. Okay, I, th I think we made this point. What do you think about you know, when we hear that they're unidentified aerial phenomena, that's one thing. But then when somebody like Bob Lazar 
comes out and says that he worked at a place called S4, which is a part of Area 51, on uh, alien reproduction vehicles, literally reverse engineering crashed UFOs. What are we supposed to make of things like that? Well, I mean, I'm skeptical. Mm -hmm. The yeah. degree behind the scenes, we can check on his clearances and so on. I, mean, I have reason to be skeptical, so I, I can't absolutely rule things out because everything can be manipulated. Sure. If you've looked at the magnesium bismuth piece from Roswell, which was, I guess, a, a, a grandfather who was a, a colonel in the Roswell cleanup collection. This was sort of left in a safe, right. and the grandson found it. You do material analysis on this bismuth magnesium piece. The magnesium ratios were way off. Mm. I mean, not even close to being natural. It can microsize, microsize waveguides for terahertz. channels, yeah. To me, only data counts. Mm -hmm. I have no idea whether this story of somebody finding it in his grandfather's diary and so on is true mm -hmm. or not. So the only data I have is this piece of material, and does it have any unusual properties that, that are interesting? Well, I can check that out, and I found out that it did have this miniaturization of waveguide channels well below wavelength, which is quite an accomplishment, but once you realize how metamaterials work, you, you can do that. So, so, so that was interesting. I definitely believe that many people uh, have been through the experience of contact, whether or not that's completely in their head or a government-induced uh, hypnotic state or who knows what, I no longer believe that this is just a bunch of people looking for attention. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it could be a psyop. That's what I'm saying. That, right. that, that makes it the most interesting thing in the world because it's either the best, <laughs> if you're to force rank psyops, it's up there in terms of, you know, the, the, the intersection between interesting and effective. Yeah. It's good. Hal, we really appreciate you being here. Eric, thank you for co-hosting. You were a great uh, co-host. You asked a lot of questions that I could not. Jesse, I really appreciate what you're doing, trying to get this issue out in front of the public and uh, get it taken seriously and putting it on a, you know, its best foot forward. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. It's a terrific conversation. It's always very uh, exciting to you know, delve into these things. So Yeah, it's good. I, I think so too. And yeah. I think there are a lot of loose threads, but uh, to be continued. A lot of loose threads. Yeah. We'll, we'll, ch we'll chase them all. Okay, sounds okay. good. Thanks for coming out.